Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. We will do the stand for the reading of God's word, but not yet. That part's coming in a little bit. There's an introduction first. Don't want to keep you standing for the whole introduction. This is Advent Sermon 2. Godliness, hope, and unity. Those are our themes today. Godliness, hope, and unity. It's December 8th. The Middle Street Walk. A festive time. I have never actually been on the Middle Street Walk. But it is a festive time in the city. A festive time in our lives. Lights. Childhood memories. All the festivities of Christmas. The celebrations. The traveling. And Pastor Paul. Not the Apostle Paul. The other Pastor Paul. This is a guy who I brought up months ago. He was a guy who I met in the mall. You might, I think I mentioned him in a sermon. This was back in the summer. But he came to mind. I didn't see him again. But he came to mind the other day because I was thinking of Christmas and I was thinking of how I came across this man who asked me some kind of normal question at first such as where's the movie theater or something like that in the mall. And then it transitioned into more personal questions. And somewhere along the line, he introduced himself as Pastor Paul, or I like to call myself Pastor Paul. I'd like to pastor the one true church, a church that doesn't celebrate any of these holidays that we celebrate today, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, all of these things. Have you ever met someone like Pastor Paul? Have you ever met some of those people? There, there are some people who get this idea that if we get rid of the fog of all the holidays, we can see God more clearly. And in some ways, I understand where they're coming from. Holidays can be very hectic times. They can be very busy times. They can be distracting, even a holiday about like Christmas that's that's about the birth of Jesus. We can get distracted by the, the, the going to and fro and the, the long lines and the urgency to get things done. And of course, a lot of people take these things back to their pagan roots that some things have. But scripture is full of celebrations. Although Christmas isn't prescribed for us to celebrate, per se. Scripture is full of celebrations. We, we do see God ask, specifically telling people to commemorate and celebrate with different festivals. And that is something God uses to, for the sake of, of worship and for the sake of remembering certain things. He often has uh, some kind of festivity or commemoration set up so that people will remember whatever it was, God bringing the people out of Egypt. Oh, we partake of communion, which is not a holiday, something much different, but we do this in remembrance of Jesus. Christmas is here to stay, whether we like it or not. Many people love it. Many people, it fills them with fond childhood memories, the eggnog, the gingerbread men, jolly times at grandma's house, and the like. Others, 
It can be a time of loneliness and a time of sorrow. There's a whole spectrum of emotions that can come with any holiday, and Christmas is certainly no exception. But Christmas is here to stay, and we can use it as, a as something to cause us to think of Jesus. And I'm stating the obvious, but it helps to get back into the Word. It helps to renew our minds during the Advent season. We think back to the Incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, and we look forward to the great and glorious time of Jesus. And we use the Scripture to renew our minds and refresh us. <laughs> All kinds of songs happen at Christmas too, right? <laughs> you never know. You never know. All kinds of Christmas songs. Indeed, I'll, I'll weave that into the sermon. All kinds of strings. You know, sometimes there are, you turn on the radio, there's, there's the um, glorious songs, so scriptural, so biblical, makes us think of Jesus. And then you have songs like Santa Baby. <laughs> on December 8th, I hereby institute that if anybody promotes Santa Baby, you will receive church discipline. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> At, with the very least of it being not being a, not being allowed to partake of any of the snacks after church. <laughs> now, Christmas time, a busy time, a festive time, and we use Advent to renew our minds, renew our minds about the coming of Christ, and that Christ came and clothed himself in human flesh. It can be easy to go through the motions at this time of year. And that's why Advent is so good. Because it takes us back to the scripture and it, and it helps us to take that time to, even alongside all the places that we're going and the festivities that we're doing, to take that time to tune our minds to Jesus and, and start to think about his glorious return more than we normally would. Maybe to make that a more intentional part of our daily life to think about the glorious return of Jesus. Just as many of the festivals that God uh, directed in the Old Testament uh, were God directed and wholesome and pure and, and perfect as he directed them, people could get so used to celebrating them, sometimes they would go through the motions. And we see this in the book of Isaiah. We see God angry with Israel for going through these, these useless religious motions that were not actually pleasing him. Any of you have a Christmas song that you've sung so many times throughout your life, or you've heard it so many times throughout your life, you can, you can just sing with it, but maybe there are certain parts where if you really thought about it, you'd have no idea what that means. I heard, I don't know how many times I have sung the song, Angels We Have Heard on High. It's a good song. It's a good song indeed. But there's this one Latin part that's in that song. Angels We Have Heard on High. And all throughout my childhood, I would say even into my adulthood, definitely into my adulthood, I'm not sure how, how much into it, there's that line that says, Gloria in excelsis Deo. And it means glory to God in the highest in Latin. That's about all the Latin that I know. 
but it means glory to God in the highest. But I can't tell you how many years I used to think that it said, in excels is dead. And as a kid, I always sang it, in excels is dead. And I thought in excels was a nickname for Herod. And it's a joyful song saying, evil King Herod is dead. We can, we can continue enjoying life because Herod is dead. Who knew? And, and, and something much better. It's a silly example. But the fact is, we can get so used to traditions. And it's good to take a moment during this Advent season of waiting to tune our minds, tune our hearts to the fact that we are indeed waiting for the glorious return of Jesus. So this morning, like last week and like the coming weeks, we're going to look at an Old Testament scripture, a gospel scripture, and one of Paul's epistles that can help tune our hearts to the glorious return of Christ and what does that mean for us now. We're going to look at the themes of hope, godliness, and unity. And the best way to prepare for Advent time, and ultimately for Christmas, is to enjoy Jesus and tell others about him. So, here's the part where we stand for God, the reading of God's word. This is going to be Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. So if you please, would you stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or dis decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the branch of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in, on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. You're welcome to have a seat. Advent is a season of hope. Advent is a season of hope. And in here, in this passage, this prophetic passage about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we see hope for, it, for Judah. We see hope for us. 
Isaiah ministered at a very dark time indeed, of idolatry, of ignoring the fatherless and the widow, of rote religious motions. And at this time, God had to use Assyria as his rod. In chapter 10 of Isaiah, it says God used Assyria as his rod to punish Israel because the prophets being sent, simply proclaiming a message of repentance wasn't enough. Eventually, Israel had to be disciplined in their idolatry. And God did even this out of love. Assyria and Babylon had judged Judah, or Babylon would judge. Assyria had judged. And here we see, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David, or was the father of King David. And it might seem to them at this time that there was only but a stump left of the dynasty of David after being attacked by Assyria. At the time, they were well familiar with the foolishness of King Ahaz. And here we look to a greater king. Here Judah looked to a greater king. We read of Jesus, the coming Messiah. And we consider, and at this time, the, these people looked forward to the first advent and the second advent. I'm not sure how much they understood that there would be both. But they ultimately looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And as, as we will read when we read the gospel section, we know this very much describes the Messiah, Jesus, on his first advent, and it describes his character and his second coming as well. The foolishness of King Ahaz, and even the goodness of King David, the man after God's own heart, Jesus would be a superior king to David. There was hope for Judah, and there is hope for us. As we look at this scripture, it says, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And we think of the, the pure, excellent fruit that Jesus showed in his life. There is hope for us in Christ as we look back to the Messiah. As we look back to the incarnation of Jesus coming, there is hope for us because Jesus, Jesus, the, Jesus bore the fruit of the Spirit in perfection, something that we could never ever do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He died for us. He rose again. And there is hope and eternal life for us when we look back to him and his finished work on the cross. And as we consider today's world, just as Judah was well familiar with the failures of their many kings, we're, fam we're familiar with the lack of hope and the failure in the politics that we see around us. Looking back to the last presidential election and probably the one before that, and maybe some before that, we saw so much mudslinging, such a spirit of negativity on both sides, really such a spirit of negativity, so much mudslinging that it became difficult to actually tell what good things either candidate proposed to do because the focus was on the failures of the opposite team's candidate.
and there's the great political divide. We see so much division, so much division. But there is hope for us with our coming king. There, there's, there's a cause to be a good citizen, surely. And we should lift up our leaders in prayer. And, and we should exercise our rights as citizens and, and vote and, and do what we can. But ultimately, no earthly leader will bring us the security, the hope that our Messiah will. And we would do well not to put our put our, all our stake in political candidates or be too worried when they don't deliver what we hope that they'll deliver. The reality is they are flawed people. Even the best are flawed people. But we, are, we await a Messiah. We await a king of the future. So when we look at the political climate, consider Jesus. Consider the, the greater, superior king who is yet to come. Sometimes we might look at a president or a mayor or a governor or some kind of leader and think, what about this? What about this problem? That they, they, might, they might have the integrity, but do they have the backbone or do they have the action to take care of something? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Sometimes they try. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail, but there is coming a king, and we can yearn for this and long for this in the future. There's coming a king who, with his might, shall lead and rule. And we consider, what about integrity? There's so much to be said about integrity of a leader, and, and, and there's so much, and we go back to the last election, there's so much People, negativity people are throwing at both candidates on either side. But the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel, knowledge, fear of the Lord, there is coming a king who will embody the integrity that we desire, uh, uh, that any godly king we see in Scripture, any good candidate today might have fragments of. But Jesus will have them perfectly, and we await a king like that. This, this echoes chapter 2. Last weekend, we were in chapter 2, and we looked at Jesus' excellent rule, and we see another snapshot of it here. And then there is truth. We await a king that will bring truth in a way, that, in a way so clear, something, something clearer than what we've ever seen before. There's this whole idea out there that's, what is truth? Does truth even exist? Is there such thing as absolute truth? Or is it just true for you or true for me? There's a lot of confusion out there. We look at the media and while there are news sources that people perhaps had faith in for years, they're starting to question, is this even reliable anymore? We see things on, on TV all the time and they're portrayed often to a slant. Here's an example. When you turn on the TV today or when you look at the newspaper, we're constantly confronted with violence, right? It's a, it's a front page item. It's, there's, we're constantly confronted with violence in our culture. And you might be surprised to hear that our culture in America is actually less violent than it was, say, 20 years ago. It's actually more peaceful. 
And that would blow a lot of people's minds. A lot of people, I'd say the majority of people probably believe we're, we're becoming more and more violent every year. And a large part of that is the media's portrayal of it. They choose which stories, I mean they have to, they only have so many minutes, but they, there's something that goes into that choice that makes this is a good story. This is a, this is a good story. And people believe it's becoming more and more violent. But if you, if you talk to, I've had opportunities to talk to several police officers, criminal justice majors. I've heard this on the radio by sociologists. If you actually track the violence, it's actually less violent than it was 20 years ago. You'd never know it by watching TV. You would never know it. Violence is still a problem, of course. But that's just an example. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel. The spirit of knowledge. Jesus will rule with truth, with absolute truth. In this confusing time in which we live, he will bring truth. And there's a spiritual battle for truth. It shouldn't confuse us that there's so, I mean, it shouldn't surprise us that there's so much confusion about truth. A little while ago, we looked at the parable of the sower and how when the word of God goes out, especially in regard to the truth of God in scripture, there is a spiritual battle for this. When the word of God goes out, there's, there, are, there are four different things that can happen that this parable of the sower showed us. And only one of them was good. Sometimes the enemy snatches up the seed before it takes root. Sometimes it takes root, but then the cares of the world choke it out. Sometimes the thorns of trials and persecution choke it out. But only on the soft heart will the soil be soft enough to take root and have the effect that God intended it. But there is coming a time when the truth of the Lord we experience in a way like never before. Take a look at verse 9. They shall not hurt nor or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consider that picture. Let that sink in for a minute. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Imagine that glorious truth of the Lord and the more that we want, the more that we know about him, the more it will cause us to worship him more and more. Consider Paul's words to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 17 to 21 says, this is a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. I do not, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches in, of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he, also, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And then Paul goes on. Imagine that prayer coming forth in its, in its fullest extent, knowing the Lord at the deep 
level, the, away from the distractions, many of them that we experience today. The world being full of the knowledge of the Lord as the oceans cover, as the water <laughs> covers the sea. So as we consider this passage in Isaiah, it's helpful to begin or continue with the end in mind. There are a lot of people who go through life having no, they have no purpose. They don't know what the purpose of life is. They don't, they just kind of, they just kind of go from day to day and they don't, they don't have any idea of, of the Lord and his truth. It's been said that the upcoming generation is the generation without a cause, has no cause to fight for. It's people just, just go meander through the motions of life. And when we see the end, when we see Jesus ruling and reigning, and that's not, he does rule and reign today. <laughs> not, not to be confused with that for a second. But we don't always see it. We look around at the world. We don't always, it's hard for us to understand that sometimes, although it's true. He's still on the throne no matter what's going on down here. But there will be a time when we see him ruling and reigning in such a clear way. And when we look at that, when we look at glorious passage like this in Isaiah chapter 11, when we see the glorious role of the Lord, it helps put life into perspective for us. With whatever's going on, the trials, the distractions, the monotony of daily life, disappointments, frustrations, persecutions, whatever it might be, it helps us to put it into perspective. When we see the end, it helps us to live different lives now. And that's why we look at the scripture. As Isaiah pointed to a future savior, now we turn to our second scripture. John the Baptist pointed to the savior who had arrived in the flesh. So we turn from Isaiah looking at hope we're going to look at godliness. We turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 3. You don't have to stand for this part. There's only one standing part. Mm -hmm. Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. We read of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was, was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him by the river Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Philistines and sat, or <laughs> Pharisees, not Philistines, different scripture, Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the foot of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus. Last week we looked at in light and considering Isaiah 2, in light of the glory of Jesus and his kingdom setting up in the future, we are to walk in the light of the Lord. We are to walk in holiness. And John the Baptist prepares the way by calling people to repentance. And that is a turning. It is acknowledging that our ways are in friction against God's ways. They don't line up. We acknowledge it. And it's not just an acknowledgement of uh, understanding it, but it's a heart acknowledgement of turning from our ways. We do that when we first come to Christ, and then when we're in Christ, there's a whole life of repenting. There's a whole life of repenting. And it sound, a, a lot of people think repenting, repent is kind of a, a bad word. Like that's, that's not a very fun word. It's not always fun, but it's always good because it brings us closer to Jesus. It helps us to get stuff out of our life that doesn't belong, that, that, is, that is more fitting for the old self, the old self that was crucified with Christ and buried with him, but the new self's raised in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. And so we keep on shedding off the, the ways of the flesh, the old self. God calls us to a lifestyle of repentance. This is a, this is a question for all of us to consider all the time. What do we need to repent of? Sometimes it's an individual question to ask ourselves or, and to ask God of us. Sometimes it's a, a big sin as we would define it. And, and sometimes it's just, it's just our natural fleshly tendencies that bubble up in us in certain circumstances. When I'm in this situation, I get anxious. When I'm in this situation, I get bitter. In this situation, whatever, whatever this, the story is, we all know what those are. We all know what those are. And the Lord tells us, just as John the Baptist told these people, the Lord tells us to turn from those things. And he called the Pharisees and Sadducees out on their hypocrisy. They were very good at putting on the outward clothes of righteousness. And John the Baptist is preparing the way for the coming Messiah and saying, turn from your sin. Stop being hypocrites. It's, it's, it's not the outward part that God is impressed with. And we could always use that reminder ourselves too. How easy it is to make excuses, to justify. Sometimes, sometimes we have our hypocrisy even just by ourselves with no one else watching. How easy it is to justify our sins. Cer certain actions we go to are our go-to sins perhaps, or it was my environment, it was my circumstances. But we don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to compare ourselves to others or do any of those hypocritical things, but simply come to the Lord and be honest with Him. He knows anyway. And how good it is to just come to the Lord. And as Jesus, when He took on flesh, when He came in His incarnation, He took on flesh. Hebrews says 
He was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. So therefore we can go to the throne of grace and he understands. He didn't sin, but he knows what it's like to be tempted. And we can go to him, to the throne of grace, and he at our time of need, and he will help us with that. He will help us to overcome. He will help us to renounce our, our ways of the flesh and keep on following him. And by the way, thanks for being a church that, that accepts the idea of repentance. That's a, good, that's a good thing. That's a blessing to be a pastor of a church like that. There was, I've mentioned sometimes about some churches that I, I thought God was leading me to before this one. And there, was, there were a couple that were um, very much on the theologically liberal side. And on some of those churches, you don't hear words like repent. And you don't even hear like a, an unchurchy word that, that means repent, really. It's, that, that's just kind of not in the vocabulary. That's not, not really even in the theology. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I could, maybe if I pastor a church like that, I could kind of ease into the idea of turning from sin. Like slowly ease into it and maybe as the years went by, I could eventually bring up the idea of repenting from sin and they wouldn't know what hit them by the time I could kind of sneak it in somehow. It's a, it's a blessing not to have to do that. <laughs> I know some people who have uh, actually tried and <laughs> it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. Some people are, are just stubborn and they, and they, want, their, um, they want their comfortable religion. They want their comfortable religion. What do we need to repent of? That's a question to ask each of ourselves. Now, as John pointed to Jesus, the Messiah who had come in the flesh, John knew, John the Baptist knew, that they weren't to unite around him. He wasn't the Messiah. He knew they were not to unite around him. He had disciples but he didn't gather his disciples and want to hoard them to himself. He wanted ultimately people were to unify around Jesus. It was his job to point people to Jesus. It's our job to point people to Jesus. John the Baptist called, to, called for godliness. God still calls for godliness. And in a spirit of Advent, we can also be called to a spirit of unity. A spirit of unity indeed. This we go to the scripture of Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, 4 through 13. This is what Paul says. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. 
And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The Lord calls us to unity. We experience a little bit of that just with the Christmas vibe, don't we? People kind of unify in general, whether they're Christians or not. There's some People do get into the Christmas spirit. Even in the mall when people are shopping, there's a little bit of just an upbeat, upbeat attitude. Just a little bit. People are in a hurry still and such. But there's a little bit of an upbeat attitude as the Christmas decorations are about. But that, that's good. But the Lord calls us even to something deeper. He calls us to a unity that's based on the being in Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ and being in Him. When we look at this scripture, we see this, another scripture that shows us all along with these Old Testament scriptures referring to the Gentiles, all along the gospel, the life in the Lord was for all people. It took some people, it took some Jews a very long time to accept that. But it was always for all people. God reached out to the people through Israel. But it's always for all people. The Jews considered Gentiles as little more than fuel for the fires of hell. They, many, many of them had, could not possibly fathom a Gentile knowing the Lord. It just wasn't meant to be. Likewise, when we consider people who are very far from the Lord, sometimes we can fall into that way of thinking. Do you have anybody who, who's kind of a Samaritan to you, perhaps? Anybody who, anybody, a, a coworker, a, a relative, a friend, a neighbor, somebody who seems so far from Christ, so you can't even fathom how that person can come to know Jesus. Your brain just, it, it just can't wrap around and you naturally find yourself saying that person's never going to follow Jesus. You'd probably not say it to someone out loud because you know that's not necessarily true. But that's what you think. Ever catch yourself thinking that way? Maybe it's because the person's indifferent. They just don't care. They, they're, they're not even interested in anything like spirit. They're only interested in the now. They're so materialistic and worldly. Maybe the, it's because the person is so overtly sinful. They, they, just, they just love sin so much. Maybe it's because the person uh, is so skeptical and, and their heart is so hardened in their skepticism. Whatever it is, maybe think about that person. That could be a good person to pray for. These Old Testament scriptures show that God always had a heart for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Hard for the Jews to accept. But when Christ came and robed himself in human flesh, he reached out to people like the woman at the well. He's told stories of the Good Samaritan. And that reminds us that the gospel is for all. It is for all today too. So as we're, think, as we're going to our family gatherings, do you have that uncle? Do you have that 
niece, whoever the person is, it's like, how could that person ever come to Jesus? Not through our strength. With man, it might be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So this is a challenge for us to pray for that person, to see them in a new light, to believe that they can come to know the Lord, and the Lord might want to use you in that. Here's another question along those lines. Maybe the person's skeptical. Maybe they're hard-hearted. Maybe they're sin-loving. Maybe they're, they just don't care. Maybe they are uh, such a good person with their actions that it's hard for them to understand they need forgiveness. Here's another question. If it weren't for the Lord reaching out to you, which one would you be? Which one would I be? We'd all fall into one of those categories, right? Probably different ones across the spectrum. But the Lord reached out to us. So we are to, well, we are to reach out to the non-believer and we are also to welcome one another. Paul says in this scripture, to welcome one another. Other believers. Welcome them into our church. As the days go by and the weeks go by, Gloucester is such a unique place in that many of the people have lived here for years. Some of you have lived here for years. And then some people live here and then go away, then come back. And as, we, as we're here, who, know, who knows who might come through the door? You might think, Bartholomew, what? Impossible. Impossible. I thought he was a bank robber. He's in church. No, that's, that's Jeff. <laughs> in the city, we come across people. Other believers from other churches. Maybe, maybe other believers, uh, who, maybe people who have been at this church in the past and, and have gone, gone uh, to another church or, or not in church at all. People who we come across I had a wonderful experience a couple days ago. Uh, there's this group that I think I've mentioned before in conversation, never, never in a sermon, but in conversation I've probably mentioned this group, Cape Ann Evangelical Pastors Fellowship. It is swell. It is swell. I went to it a couple days ago, and it's just what it sounds like, Cape Ann Evangelical Pastors Fellowship. And there I was, I was refreshed with how many pastors from the area want to unite, to come together, acknowledging that we're different in some of our, some of our little theological angles. We're different in our practice, and we have different churches, of course, but we, we unite in Christ. And there's a, spirit of un, there's a spirit of unity there. We had a certain speaker there who encouraged us to look at, look at the spreading of the gospel not in a way of increasing church size, although that can be a good, a good byproduct, but the idea that there are plenty of lost people. There's about, he said there's about, in the Essex County, it's about 3% of the population claimed to be Christian. About 3%. And that's, what a minority. If we're reaching out to others, it's absurd to try to think of any kind of competition style amongst churches. <laughs> if, if the other 
97% all went to one church, <laughs> it, that would overflow it. <laughs> that wouldn't work. There's this idea of working together, this idea of unity of believers. When we see other churches, maybe they do a little, things a little bit differently. Some of them do things way differently. But there is the unity in Christ, when the churches are in Christ, of course. There's the unity of Christ. So, as we consider godliness, hope, and unity, we wrap up on this note. Meditate on Isaiah and ask God, how do I live now? Thinking of the future glorious return of Christ, how do I live now? Pray for unity. Pray for unity in, in, in the believers, not trying to form one big church, but a spirit of unity amongst the believers on Cape Ann. I think, I think there is some, and I think God will do great things with it. Pray for a spirit of unity among the believers of Cape Ann. And think of that person, whoever that Gentile, Samaritan kind of person is in your life. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's someone in town. Maybe it's someone far off. Whatever that is, spend some time, some committed, specific time praying for that person this week. We're going to close on that note. Let's join together in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your future glorious reign. Thank you that you are reigning now. Lord, we thank you for uh, what we have to look forward to you in the new heaven and the new earth. We pray that, that you, we cause us to think about that in such a way that it really makes a difference in our actions in our lives now. We do pray for unity of believers on Cape Ann, that, that no that no gospel-centered, Bible-believing church would view it itself in competition with any other church for any reason, but that we would be unified in you, that we would see these people as our brothers and sisters, as our friends, and that we are working together. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on all the churches of the city and of the Cape and of the county, and we do pray that you would use us to shine the light to the lost. We do pray, Lord, for our lost relatives, lost families, friends. And we pray uh, this Christmas season as we go to gatherings that you would open up doors, open up the opportunities, and shine your light through us. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Uh, we also commit our tithes and our offerings to you as an act of worship. And we pray your will be done with those. Use them for your kingdom purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.